morning. Good morning. Everybody hear me? Good, good, good. My name is Dax Palmer. I'm the director of Outreach. I'm excited uh, to preach for y'all this morning. Uh, had a good time with the Lord the last couple of weeks, and I'm just very excited. Uh, but welcome you all that are in-house and those that are outside and those that are visiting online. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with our scripture reading. We have a lot to cover, um, so feel free to tap the person next to you to uh, continue the reading also. So we'll read this together. One, two, and three. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in vision. shield. Reward shall be great. But Abraham said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? Damascus. Abram said,
formed people. I've broken my covenant. Amen. Amen. You know, one of the favorite shows that we watch as a family, especially on Sunday, is a show called America's Funniest Video. Anybody watch that? Man, I've been, I did not realize that show had been running for 32 years, since I was nine years old. But anyway, in this particular uh, uh, show that, that was on during that day, they had something going on called the Candy Challenge. Have you all heard of that? So pretty much what would happen is that they would put a piece of candy in front of a child, right, and record it, and then walk away. And then they would kind of determine, all right, is this, does this child have self-control or not? Right, and they would record it, and this was going on for, for a while. But what they didn't realize, that they were doing the same experience, experiment that happened in the 1960s, which was called the marshmallow experiment. And what, were the, and what they were trying to do was measure the, the self-control of kids. And what they found out is, yes, environmental factors did play a role if whether the kid will touch that marshmallow or not, such as hunger, boredom, if the child was tired, and, and stuff like that. But when they did the study again in 2012, they found something interesting. It wasn't just the environmental factors that played a role. In fact, they played a, a smaller role than what they figured out. Listen to this. It says, having reliable interactions with adults influenced what children did later. Kids who interacted with adults who followed through on what they said, they waited far longer on average before nibbling a marshmallow than other children who interacted with adults who didn't do what they said. The children seemed to be, seemed to be deciding how likely that promised future was going to happen. See, when parents or adults don't follow through on what they tell their child, it impacts the way kids trust other people. So if a child doesn't believe that the individual will follow through on what they said, they develop trust issues. The results are broken promises. I mean, how many of us have, have heard a broken promise or have a promise broken with us? And many of us, we don't deal with that, the broken promise issue as we get older. In fact, as you get older, life starts to affirm what you believe. You can't trust people. You guys ever heard that person that says, I'll believe it when I see it? Some of that, some of y'all. And here's the thing. Just because we are Christians, just because we are Christians, it doesn't mean we trust God fully. There are times I question God myself. Did I do enough? Is Jesus truly the only way? Or will God even help me or guide me throughout my life? So I love what, what I love about Abram is that I see a lot of my story, our story, in him. Like Jeff mentioned earlier, we are living in the stage of the already, not yet. God had promised some things to us and to Abraham, but yet it hasn't come to fruition, and it's hard living it out. So today, as we begin the, the conversation of covenants, I want to show you all that we serve a God that is faithful and keeps his promise, and we can trust him. Now, I want to be careful because sometimes we create promises and hold God accountable that he never even said. For instance, God promised your best life now. If we are God's children, nothing evil will happen to us. In fact, if something does happen, it's because of your faith or because of your individual sin. Or listen to this one. Trade up a child in a way that he should go and he will not depart. 
And I have witnessed devout men and women training their children up. But yet, as they get older, the children leave the faith. And we point fingers at that person, especially when it happens to pastors or leaders in the church. And what people feel to realize is that even in a theocracy, people were turning away from God. So how can we think even different? But if we believe these false promises that we hang on God's head, we begin to have trust issues with God. So today my goal is to show you that God is faithful and will fulfill what he has promised. So the message today is the promise-keeping God. The promise-keeping God. And we will look how God engages with Abraham, how God promises Abraham, and God demands obedience through the Abraham covenant. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray for uh, the, the message today, Lord God. I pray that, man, it goes out today and transforms hearts, Lord God, transforms minds, and transforms my own heart and mind, Lord God. So I pray that I get out the way, Lord God, and give me the wisdom, the courage, and the boldness to speak your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, so we have a lot to cover. I'm going to try to, to cover be as thorough as possible. Um, but we're going to cover about three or four chapters, right, in about 30 minutes. So bear with me. So now God first called Abraham, Abram, in chapter 12 of Genesis. And he's about 75 years old, and Sarai is about 60. And he tells Abraham, go out from your land your relatives, and your father's house, and go to a land that I will show you. And God tells them all the things that he will do. Now, for most of us, if you are in your 60s and 70s, all your family is around you, especially in a culture like that, very rarely will you leave and begin a new journey. And if you haven't had kids at 60 or 70 years old, chances are you don't want kids at that age, especially babies <laughs> at that age. I mean, I'm in my 40s, right? And having a baby right now scares me, right? I love my kids. I love them to death. But man, at this stage of life, I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. A couple weeks ago, and I won't put no fingers at my wife, and I'm the kind of the jokester in my wife uh, and my family. But a couple weeks ago, I called my wife, and she had the audacity to tell me she was pregnant. <laughs> right? And, and don't point fingers at her because, you know, we joke like that. But I'm going to tell you, when she told me that, my heart began to pump a little faster, <laughs> right? I started having flashbacks of poopy diapers, being up all night, teething, all this stuff, childcare. Holy cow. <laughs> but we can laugh at these things because we aren't Abram. But already we see that just because you are in a relationship with God and living in his promise, it doesn't mean it will be easy. It will cost you something. But here's the interesting thing. There's not a word from Abram. He's not asking God why. He just goes. And think about it. Abram is losing all that, he's known, all that he knows. His place of security, the land, which is probably passed down from generation to generation. His comfort. He's moving from his family. And God is calling him to start a new family. And God is telling him to trust him. And we don't know if God spoke to Abram before this or not. It's not recorded. But God is saying to trust him in the things that have not yet come to pass. And in chapters 13 to 14, Abraham is, has an event in Egypt. You all know there's a famine. And he goes to Egypt and he tells him, look, tells his wife, Sarah, like, look, tell them you are my sister. I'm scared. 
I don't want to get killed. Then he has another challenge. He goes and rescues his cousin Lot from a hostage situation. A lot of hardships that Abraham is going through, and it could seem like that God's promises is false. We read these things with with no connection, but he went through some hard things. I can imagine that he's questioning his faith, the promise, the promises. God promised all these things. It's been years, but it seems like life is getting harder. But don't we act the same way when hardship comes? Loss of a job, loss of a loved one, abuse, depression, divorce, anxiety. God, I thought being a Christian protected me from all this. But yet my life is proven to be different. Why? But what we, uh, what we got to understand is that God never, prayed, God never promised Abraham or us that the journey will be safe, fun, always enjoyable. No, he promised that he will be with us and that he will get us there. So we can understand Abraham when he says in chapter 15, Lord, God, what can you give me? Says, I am childless. Look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. We haven't had a baby yet. We've been trying for years. This slave will be my heir. See, when God doesn't move on our time, we begin to doubt God's promises. But I love the kindness of God. He says this, this one will not be your heir. Instead, the one who comes from you, your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to them, to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And it's amazing how nature can enhance one's belief in God. I can imagine Abram walking outside, looking looking up at the sky and seeing the beauty of creation. Holly, I remember you did that post a couple weeks ago. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There is no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. It's like God took him outside and showed him his work. Abraham, let me show you something. Let me show you some of my work. And I can see Abram looking up in awe at creationists. And creation is screaming creator. It was at that moment that he believed in God. Verse 6 says, Abraham, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. Now, this might be a shock to some of you. Maybe not. But I'm a nature person. I'll pass on the camping. Thank you all who had invited me camping at one point. <laughs> but I will pass. I will settle for my nature walks and my nature shows. But don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. I love the evolution of technology. But there's something about nature that draws you close to God. The creativity, the beauty, the controlled chaos, the way animals live and survive, the way the earth is just far enough that the sun doesn't burn it and the moon is positioned in a way that affects our tides. I mean, if you just walk outside, it realigns your perspective about God. And I want to challenge you, if you are struggling with your belief in God, hardships in God, whatever it may be, enjoy nature. Go outside. 
Because if God could control the complex earth, the complex universe with complex planets, stars, he could control our complex lives and meet us there. Then Abraham says in regards to the land, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> okay, I was going to see if that was going to slide. Okay, and then God tells Abraham to cut the animals in half. And essentially what he does, he creates a pathway that is separated by these animals. God is preparing what is called a blood covenant. Y'all say a blood covenant. All right. This practice is not unique to Abraham and God. In fact, this is practiced throughout the cultures around that, around that time. And what it communicates to both parties is if, if I break any parts of this covenant, let me, be a, let me be of these animals. Like I said, this is not unique. But what is unique is that God is the only one that passes by through this uh, covenant. One, one commentator says this, the covenant was sealed by God alone. Nothing depended on Abraham. Everything depended on God, who promised to be faithful to his covenant. Hebrews chapter 6, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. This is why I push back with people, uh, they say they have a problem with God of the Old Testament. He's violent. He's evil. He can't make up his mind. This is why understanding the covenants is crucial. See, once you understand that a just God who has no obligation to save us, in fact, we are enemies, he engages with his enemies, us, promises to bless his enemies, us, and redeems his enemies, us. Is there any other God in any other religion that even comes close to our God? See, God knows that Abram will not be able to uphold his part of the covenant, so God passes through by himself. It's almost like God knows our hearts. <laughs> it's almost like God knows that we are prone to wander. God engages. But after God engages, we see that God makes a promise. And what we see in chapter, uh, chapter 16, which we didn't read, Abraham and, and Sarah have this great idea to help God. And I say Abraham and Sarah because it takes two to tango, right? They both had to come in an agreement and say, this is the way. And what they do is they say, maybe God got a little off. He doesn't really understand that we're a little past our childbearing age. So I, I got a great idea. Let's go through a maidservant. Because he did say through your loins, not mine, but he did say through yours. So I got a great idea. Let's have relations with, with our maidservant, Hagar. And then 13 years later, Ishmael is born. So now we enter chapter 17, and Abraham is 99 years old, and Sarah is in her early 90s. And it's in this chapter that we get more detailed information about the promises. But here's the inter interesting thing. Before he does that, he engages Abraham with something he didn't say before. He says, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. It's as if God is preparing Abraham for what he's about to say. Abraham, I'm about to tell you something crazy. But before I tell you this, I want you to know that I am El Shaddai. I am the God of all power. But before God makes his promise, he changes their identity. 
He says, your name will no longer be Abram, yet the father is exalted. Your name will be Abraham, the father of the multitude, for I will make you the father of many nations. And what's lost between their culture and ours is the meaning of names. Most of us don't name our kids based on what the name means, which was common practice during this time. Usually we give our, our kids names that are sentimental value to us, either a loved one or perhaps a junior or somebody that you a uh, book you read like my mom did. But either way, some type of sentimental value. But in those days, when a change happens in a culture, you are essentially changing their identity, similar to what we do here. I could change my gender and therefore change my gender and therefore change my identity. God changes his name from Abram, which is the father exhausted, uh, exalted, but Abraham didn't have no kids, so this name really didn't make sense. He was pointing to his own father. But he changes him from Abram to Abraham, which is translated the father of many nations. And God sees him for who he is, but identifies him of what he will become. Abraham, I see you as the father exalted, but you are going to become the father of many nations. Identity change. And I wonder, I wonder how many of us are still holding on to our old identity? I don't know what identity you're holding on to. Maybe identity of failure, overachiever, addict, gossiper, deceiver, know-it-all. Maybe your identity is in your race, your gender, social class, social status. I don't know. But maybe the reason why you're not developing in your faith is that you're rejecting the new identity which we have in Christ and holding on to what you know. See, for God to fulfill his promises for us, he has to give us a new identity. The Bible says we are a new creation. He changes our identity to fulfill his promises. And right after this, right after identity change, he gives six promises, six I will statements. I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you fruitful. I will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant with you and your offspring. I will give you this land that you are residing, and I will be their God. God said to Abram, as for your wife Sarai, don't call her Sarai no more, for her name will be called Sarah. And God changes his identity to continue to fulfill his promise. And then he says this, so there's no misunderstanding about the baby. I don't want the same mistake you all did in chapter 16. He says, I will bless her. I will give you a son by her. And she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Don't repeat that mistake. And here's the interesting thing. God is the one that names Isaac. Not Abram, not Sarah, but God. Their first child. And remember, names have meaning in this culture. And the meaning of Isaac means to laugh or rejoice. And some commentators attribute that name because of Abraham, the fact that Abraham laughed when God said that you're going to have a baby. But I believe, I believe God named, I named him Isaac because God wanted people to remember to rejoice. Because this is evidence, this is physical reminder that this is the child of promise. In fact, this is the child that our child of promise will come from. Isaac is a reminder for us to rejoice because this is when the story 
begins to narrow. This is what Paul calls the child of promise. He says in Galatians, when he talks about the two sons of Abraham, one of a slave woman and one of a free, he says this, now you two brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of the promise. Because of this, God is calling us to rejoice. Why? Because God is a covenant-keeping God. We need to rejoice because we serve a God who keeps his promise. The God who engages is the God that promises, but it's also the God that demands obedience. Circumcision. Tough one. He says this, this is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. Uh, if any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, most males have this procedure done as a baby, which is a blessing, so we don't remember the pain. But I'll tell you this. If I am 99 years old and God is telling me circumcision, I'm asking God, is there another way? <laughs> I mean, the pain alone could take me out. And plus that, how am I going to explain to this to my 13-year-old son and the rest of my community? Circumcision. This was a painful procedure. You guys, you all remember in Dinah when, when, when she had uh, got violated and her brothers went to go kill the whole city. They said, we want to be joined with y'all. But the Israelites said, no, you must become circumcised first. And so they went to go get circumcised. And two men knocked out the whole city after they got circumcised. This is a painful procedure, but God demands obedience. But the problem for us is that we tend to view obedience through convenience, meaning I will be obedient when it's, when it's convenient for me, when it fits my schedule. Maybe when my kids get older or when my work slows down, I'll, I'll, I'll be obedient. But this story says no. I will be obedient even when it hurts, even if it will cost me something. Now, remember, God told Abraham to leave everything he's ever known, gave him a new identity, gave him promises, and asked him for obedience. And in this case, obedience is circumcision. But think of it. None of the promises have already happened yet. And God is asking him to do something, demanding him to do something. And so what does circumcision mean? I don't want to examine this lightly. There are hundreds of books talking about this. There have been church splits, uh, splits because of this, uh, the meaning of circumcision. But one of the benefits of this act of obedience, it opens the door for people to be part of a covenant community. It didn't necessarily mean that you were of the covenant community, but it just gave you access to the benefits. And throughout Israel's journey, they divided people into two camps. <laughs> the circumcised and the uncircumcised. So this was a big deal. In the book of Acts, in regards to the early church, Acts 15.1 says this, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this wasn't some isolated thinking or a new thought. This is baked in their tradition. Circumcision equals salvation. This is why some of the issues that Jesus had with the, with the Pharisees, they believed they were, they were saved because of circumcision. But if we don't understand the purpose and meaning of circumcision, then we might be missing out on the promises of God. Not only that, not only that, 
but we might be headed in the wrong direction. Because there was a lot of people circumcised, but we're headed in the wrong direction. So the question is, is circumcision needed for salvation? And I try to think of the simplest way to, to, to break this down. So I want, to, I want y'all to compare circumcision as my ring. So does my ring, and this is response, does my ring have any power? Does it improve my marriage? Do I need it to be married? So it has no power. But I could also have the wrong view of the ring. I could get married just to get a ring. We see this all the time. Buy me a ring, I'll get married. And if you cheat on me, buy me another ring, a bigger ring. We see this in Hollywood, right? I can lie, cheat, and steal, and do whatever, it, whatever I want because it doesn't matter because I got the ring. And am I able to get a ring without being married? Sure. So you can have a wedding ring without actually getting married. And this was the problem with some of the Israelites. They had the ring, they had the circumcision without being in a relationship with God. They believed that the act of circumcision gave them all the benefits of being in a covenant relationship with God without actually being in the relationship. Licentiousness. I don't need to do anything. I'm good. I can sit back, relax, enjoy the ride. I'm in the club. But God says, God pushes back on this. Jeremiah 9.25, he says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Well, I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Deuteronomy 10.16, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. See, God judged Israel not because of how they lived. Uh, God judged Israel because of how they lived after circumcision. After they got circumcised. But how many of us are acting like the Israelites? Just because we are good with salvation, we don't think there's anything anything uh, for us to do. So what does it mean? The ring. It reminds me. When I put this ring on, it it doesn't empower me like a superhero, but it's a a reminder to me that I am in a covenant with another person. It points back to the covenant promises that were made at the altar. So when I don't feel like being married, I'm reminded of the vows that we took before God and man. See, this covenant was never just about me. It's about us. I don't cut out on my wife when things get hard. I'm reminded this is a covenant. But because we are sinners, because we are sinners, we do have biblical grounds to leave. Because, but because we're in a covenant community, we hold each other accountable. Israel was to be reminded what God has promised, circumcision. This ring also governs how I should live. It reminds me that because I am married, there are certain things that I should avoid and also certain things that I should do. Israel was to do justice, serve the poor, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, but yet they failed. And also, this uh, ring communicates to others that I am in a relationship with somebody. Friends, we have a greater circumcision than this. We have a circumcision that hands can never do. 
Paul says in Colossians 2, 10 through 11, and you have been complete in Christ. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of your sinful nature with the circumcision performed by Christ, not by human hands. The first circumcision was done by the power of man, but this circumcision is done by the power of God. And this circumcision that we have in Christ does a few things. It reminds us that we serve a God who is faithful and keeps his promises. We are reminded that God made a promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We are reminded that we are children of the promise and co-heirs of Christ. We are reminded that God prepared a place for us far greater than the land of Abraham. We are reminded that God has promised to be our God forever. And even though there's no blood in this new circumcision in Christ, we still have pain, hardship, because now we're dealing with the heart. <laughs> and God has to cut off all our, the prune, all the impurities of my heart, my view, my view of justice, my view of work, relationships, marriage, even my view of church. And what is God commanding you to do? What is God commanding you to do? What is that one thing that God is pushing you to do? Will you be obedient to the Lord? As we close, you all remember the study I mentioned earlier about the kids? I believe we are in the same predicament. And instead of scientists and researchers, we have three enemies. The word, I mean the world, the flesh, and the devil trying not to get us obedient to the Lord. And here's the thing. They know exactly what to put in front of us. They, they know what buttons to push, what, what we long for, control, some of us, pride, envy, temptation, substances, whatever it is. They know what we desire. But the good news is, is that we serve a God that fulfills his promises. So if God says that we will never thirst again. We got to believe that and hold on to that. Friends, whatever your candy challenge is, we have a God that engaged us with Jesus, fulfilled his promises in Jesus, and will raise us up like Jesus. We have a God that keeps his promises so we can trust him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just being who you are, Lord God, continuing to show up when we think that there is no hope, Lord God, and just, man, empowering, empowering us to do what you have commanded us. So, Lord God, today, this week, Lord God, help us and teach us to hold on to your promises. Hold on to what you have given us, Lord God, and trust and believe that you have never failed us and then that you will not begin now. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.